My name is Chris Hay. I've been here at, at uh, yeah, Eternity Bible College. I work at Eternity Bible College. I've been here at Cornerstone Church for a couple years. And it's my privilege this morning to uh, bring to you the last of the minor prophets. Uh, what a summer it's been, huh? Have you enjoyed getting to know these obscure books of the Old Testament? Yeah. And our prayer is that they are never obscure in your uh, Bible again. That those pages of your Bible become some of the dirtiest pages on the edges, not the cleanest. Um, <clears throat> Malachi. Uh, today we end it. Uh, the final book in the uh, series on the Minor Prophets. And more than that, it's the final book of the Old Testament. When Malachi closes... There is this period of about 400 years where God does not reveal any more Scripture, uh, no more inspired Word. Uh, that's it. Uh, there is this 400 years of silence. And when the silence is broken, it's with John the Baptist who is preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah as the New Testament opens. Uh, next week, Todd will begin a series on 1 Corinthians, which I am super looking forward to, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, and he will too. But uh, let's jump into Malachi. Let's get a little bit of historical background here. Uh, Malachi ministered at the same time as Nehemiah uh, around 430 B.C. Israel has once again slipped into complacency and apathy and corruption and disobedience. They have existed as a nation for about a thousand years at this point in time. Uh, we've seen them go through the dark ages of the judges and then into the monarchy where uh, David, Saul, David, and Solomon became king. And then the, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then both of those kingdoms were carried into captivity uh, the southern kingdom for a 70-year period. And then uh, as we looked at the books of uh, Habakkuk and Haggai and Zechariah, they came back into the land and began to rebuild. And now Malachi takes place several decades after their return to their homeland. And as we look at them, as, we, as Malachi opens, we see that they have strayed away from God once again. And I really think as we look at Malachi, what we're looking at is one final attempt to get them to turn back to God. He is the last writing prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, his ministry will be followed by this, this period of, of silence. Now, God is not sleeping. God is very much at work and very much on the throne, but there is no inspiration. There's no scripture. There, there are no new revelations. It's like he closes the school of the prophets and leaves Israel till their, to their own designs. It's as if he says, okay, I have tried and tried and tried, and I'm just going to quit. 400 years of silence, and then he brings the ultimate solution, Jesus the Messiah. Now, is anybody curious to know what God would say to his people after a thousand years of history and before he shuts down for 400 years. What is it God wants to say as the final word to his people? Anybody curious? Okay, the rest of you can leave because we're, we're going <laughs> to. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the service. So. Um, <clears throat> Let's plunge in. What, what is the message of Malachi? Look, turn to Malachi chapter 1. 
And let me explain where we're going to go this morning. Uh, I'm going to look at two foundational truths, first of all. Uh, Perhaps you might call this the doctrinal, theological, foundational basis of what Malachi is going to do. And then we're going to see Malachi apply those foundational truths to two areas of life, family relationships and money. And once again, we see how irrelevant these minor prophets are as, uh, you know, nobody has issues with family, with marriage, with parenting, or money, uh, but back in 430 B.C. they did. So uh, just go ahead and listen, and maybe you'll learn something anyway. Um, So let's look at this first foundational truth. God loves us, and that doesn't change. God loves us, and that doesn't change. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. I have loved you, says Yahweh, But you say, Israel says, how have you loved us? And God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Flip over to 3.6. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. The reality is that God loves his people with an incredible, unconditional, passionate, covenant love. And that doesn't change. No matter how far they stray, no matter how many times they have disobeyed, no matter how many times they have left the faith, God loves them as his chosen people, and that doesn't change. Now, the fact that he hates Esau, don't get nervous about that. It simply means I've chosen Israel, and I have not chosen Edom. Remember who Edom was? You were here for Obadiah several weeks ago. Edom was the nation derived from Esau, Jacob's brother. God did not choose them. He chose Israel. And when he chooses a people, he loves them unconditionally, and that doesn't change. And if you are one of his followers today, you are chosen, and he loves you, and that doesn't change. Now, that's important because Malachi's message, as we get into it, could seem a little bit harsh. But it's only harsh in the sense that a father's discipline, a loving father's discipline and correction of his children would be considered harsh. We must understand that Malachi's message is absolutely based on God's love for us. He only wants our best. And, and, and as he addresses these issues, very, very bluntly, he does it because he wants our best. All right, second foundational truth. Following Jesus demands everything. Following Jesus demands everything. And I would follow that with a parenthesis, and we have no clue what that means. We have no clue what that means. Look at 3.18. 3.18 is one of, the key, uh, one of the keys to the book of Malachi. I believe Malachi is preaching his message, writing his book, if you will, around the basis of 3.18. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So what Malachi is doing in his book is he is explaining the difference between the true follower of Jesus and the one who thinks he's a follower of Jesus but really isn't. 
There is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And Malachi is going to create that distinction so we understand it. Israel didn't get it. I believe Israel was clueless. And and we're going to see as we get into the text how clueless they were. They didn't realize how disobedient they were. They didn't realize how far they had strayed. They didn't realize that following Jesus demands everything, and they had no clue what that meant. And they thought they were okay, but they weren't. Now, the Corinthians were exactly the same. And next week, as we plunge into a great series on study on on, uh, Corinthians, I think Todd is titling the series, Comfortably Numb. Comfortably Numb. That's a perfect description of Israel in 430 B.C., It's a perfect description of the church in 55 A.D. And I have a hunch it's a pretty good description of the church in 2013 A.D. Comfortably numb. Malachi 1.6, look at verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? And I honestly think that question was asked in sincerity. I think they really were clueless. How have we done this? How have we despised your name? So God answers, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Again, you see the cluelessness here? Uh, We don't get it, God. I mean, how have we polluted you? Verse 7, God answers, By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Understand in the Old Testament, when, when there was the sacrificial system set up, Israel was commanded to bring the very best of their animals to sacrifice to God. The firstborn, the fattest, the healthiest, the best, that's what God expected his people to bring as sacrifices to him. And what they were doing here is they were bringing the sick ones, the lame ones, the dregs, the second best, or even the worst. Continuing in verse 8, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. They were giving better sacrifices to pay their taxes than they were to give to God's work. And God is even saying here, you know what? If you give that garbage to the governor, he won't even accept it. And how dare you give me Less or worse than that. They were clueless that God demands everything. They were clueless as to what that means. Verse 11. Malachi is really going to slam them now in this point. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says God. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. 
Oh, ho, hum, God, come on, give me a break. This is so tedious. Really? That's how they're talking to the God of the universe? You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, made in his, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Notice how God says how often he says, my name will be great, my name will be feared, my name will be great, and when you bring these lousy sacrifices, you're telling the rest of the world, oh, our God, you know, second best is good enough for him. And God is saying, no, oh no, oh no. I'm the creator of all. You bring me the best. Gosh, this is so me. I think I'm doing so good. I mean, good grief. I work at a Bible college. Do you know how many Bibles I have on my shelf at home? I mean, you know, what else is there? But I am so blind. I am so polluted by the world. So jaded by my own pride. I'm so deceived by my own selfish desires that I don't even get it. I don't even understand how far off the track, off the path I am. And then when I get confronted or or convicted, I groan and moan and say, oh, what a weariness this is. This is so, so much work to follow God like that. I have to give up so much. This is so wearisome. So we work hard to do all the right things when that is not even what God wants. He wants our hearts. He wants to be our sole desire. He wants to be our single passion. He wants to be the most important thing in our lives. And I would say even not not the most important things. He, He wants to be the only thing in our lives. Look at Matthew 10, 37. It's going to be on the screen if you want to look at it up there. Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What's more precious than our family? What on earth is more precious than husband, wife, children, parents, brother, sister? Yet God says, "Uh uh-uh, I need to be first. So these are the two foundational truths that we're going to build on. God loves us passionately, and following him means we give him everything. We die to everything else. Not that Jesus is first, but that Jesus is only. So let's look and see how the single-minded devotion works out in two very real areas of life, our family relationships and money. First of all, let's look at, let's look at marriage and, and parenting. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13 of Malachi, 2.13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from your hand. You see the cluelessness here? These people bring lousy sacrifices, God rejects them, and then they start weeping and wailing and moaning and complaining because God won't accept their lousy sacrifices. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not accept these? 
Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So what Malachi is doing here is addressing the corruption of marriage. Nothing new to us in our day and age. Uh, We all know that marriage is on hard times. But the situation in 430 B.C. was a little bit different. Contrary to God's clear commands, Israel, the the men and women of Israel, and probably especially the men, were marrying heathen, pagan wives and husbands who would so pollute their commitment to the one true God that there was no hope of their children learning the truths of Yahweh. It at least appears that in this historical setting, the men would divorce their good Jewish wives so they could marry these exotic foreign women that would be captured in their uh, military raids. And then these wives would drag down the whole family, the husbands, the children, uh, in such a way that that they were clueless as to how far they had strayed from God. Now, we need to look at Nehemiah to get a little more context. So in Nehemiah 13, uh, and again, this will be on the screen, um, listen to some of this background here. Uh, Nehemiah says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. You see that? The kids couldn't even speak Hebrew because these pagan foreign wives had come into the households, into the families, and so corrupted the home that the kids were not even learning the truth of God's word. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So what's the point here? The point is, if you are messing up in your marriage, the elders of Cornerstone have biblical permission and precedent to curse you and beat you and pull out your hair. I mean, there it is. And you know, I I see this trend of guys shaving their heads, and I'm wondering, do they know their marriages are so messed up, and so they're going to get rid of the hair? Or or is it because their hair has already been pulled out? Anybody notice Todd came back from sabbatical with his head shaved? Just an observation. So what is the purpose of marriage. Why do we want to get married if, if you want to get married or if you are married? We need to understand the purpose of marriage if we're to be successful in it. Marriage exists to display God. The highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. Did you get that? The highest 
meaning, and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. Marriage is a picture, just like baptism is a picture, communion is a picture, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and us, his people, which means it is an inviolable covenant, which means we don't bail out of it when things aren't going well. Which means it's not about seeking my own uh, satisfaction and pleasure and, you know, you're not meeting my needs and, 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 you know, you didn't iron my shirt the way I like it. Come on, woman, get with it. You know, it's, it's, it's not that. In other words, Jesus is more important than marriage. Staying married and how we function in marriage is more about seeing Jesus exalted and demonstrating that he is truly first in my life. Marriage is more about demonstrating that same unconditional commitment in my marriage that God has for me. It's more about those things than it is about romance and sex and companionship and partnership. Marriage is a picture of a reality that God has instituted with us. Luke 14 Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. You see the, the comparison, the contrast that God is, Jesus is setting up there as he speaks these words? In comparison to your passion for me, Jesus, you need to hate your wife and children and mother and father. Now, on the practical, day-to-day side, and and we just simply don't have time to get into uh, a lot of practical marital principles, but this theological truth has incredible practical significance for our marriages. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German pastor and theologian who was killed by Hitler uh, in 1945, said this, "'It is not your love that sustains your marriage,' But from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Did you get that? Love doesn't keep you married. Marriage keeps you in love. How many times have we heard somebody say, well, I just don't love him anymore? And my response is, so? It's an irrelevant point. But, but I don't love her, you know? I can't stay with her if I don't love her. Uh, I'll contraire. You learn to love her because you have to stay with her. <clears throat> I'm serious. It's because we are married that I continue to love Dawn, my wife. And it's because we are married that she continues to love me, even when... I am a big jerk, which I'm not very often. Not true. Um, For better or worse, we are in this covenant relationship, and because we are married, we make it work. And I am not willing to have a lousy marriage because we disagree over the color we're going to paint the living room. It is not worth it. Jesus is more important than your happiness in marriage. And demonstrating in your marriage the reality of this covenant relationship is more important than your happiness in marriage. Now, that's all pie in the sky if you don't know Jesus. 
First of all, if you don't know him as your savior, you've got to start there. And even those of us who are believers, if we don't know God very well, then we're not going to be willing to sacrifice what we think is our happiness in exchange for a covenant of a God that we don't know very well. So, quick commercial right here. You need to get to know God better. And you do that by studying and learning and growing. And today in the foyer back here, we have several opportunities for you. Grow classes here at Cornerstone are starting soon. Sign up for them so you can continue to grow and learn. Eternity Bible College has a table back over here. Classes start tomorrow, and you can audit classes. We have a new thing online called the Silo Project, where you can take online classes at your own pace and learn more about who this God, who this Jesus is that demands your devotion. And as you get to know him better, you'll realize it's, it's worth it. So, so take a look at those opportunities today. Now, Malachi takes the admonition about marriage to explain something else. A godly marriage is necessary to produce godly offspring. Verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 of Malachi. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Now, those of us who are parents need to think about this question. Why does God give us children? Why do we want children, if you want children? What do you plan to do with your kids? And I don't mean on a bad day where they're really misbehaving. I don't want to hear what you plan to do with your kids <laughs> on those days. But, but you know, in a, in a larger scope, what's, what's the plan for your children, for your family? Do you, do you have kids because you want someone to love you? If that's the case, get a dog. I mean it. They will love you a lot more faithfully and are a lot less work. Do you want kids to take care of you in retirement? Okay, maybe. Given the state of the economy, that might not be a bad idea. Do you have kids, but you never really thought about why you have kids? It's just the thing to do when you get married, you have kids. Malachi clarifies it for us. The purpose of having children is to create a godly offspring for the next generation to learn about Jesus. God always blesses people so they can be a blessing to others. He chose Israel to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Genesis chapter 12. And they failed. So God has chosen the church to be a blessing to the rest of the world, and we better not fail. God has blessed us as families with children so we can raise them to be a blessing to the rest of the world. God gives us money and wealth and income so we can be a blessing with that money to the rest of the world. He never gives us those things to hoard them on ourselves for our own pleasure and to build us up The continuation of the faith depends on us training the next generation to carry it on. Israel failed miserably at this. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 8. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110. Look at verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
Now let me ask you a question. If there arose a whole generation that did not know Yahweh or anything about his works, who failed? Parents. Parents. I mean, this is, this is scathing. A whole generation arose that didn't know Yahweh? This was a mass failure. Those that study trends and statistics like George Barna and Lifeway Research and Josh McDowell tell us that 70 to 80% of teens and 20-somethings will leave the church and only a very small fraction return. Three quarters of our kids are leaving the church and almost by implication you could say leaving the faith and not coming back. Their analysis, they blame the parents first for depending on the church to disciple their kids. Wrong answer. It's our job, parents. But then they blame the church second for not discipling the kids that the parents haven't discipled. So the church has a responsibility, but parents, it's, it's, it's we who will answer when we stand before God. Our task is to produce offspring that are passionately sold out to Jesus. Kids that care more about sharing the gospel than buying a home. Kids that care more about dying to self for the sake of Christ than having a good paying job. Kids that are willing to go to places in the world that need the gospel, even if it's dangerous. We have got to quit raising our kids to be careful and be safe. Let me get on a little soapbox here for just a minute. This is a huge conviction of my wife and I, and we, we followed it with our kids. Uh, what's the last thing you say to your kids when they go out to play? Be careful. What's the last thing you say to your kids when they jump in the car and head off for some youth activity? Drive safely. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. We're continually saying to our kids, be careful, be careful, be careful. So they grow up, and do you think they're going to go live dangerously for Christ? No, because they've been taught their whole lives to be careful. So what we began to do in our household with our kids was say, see you guys later. Live dangerous. Take risks. (laughs) Now, they knew what we meant. We didn't mean go out and do 150 down the freeway. But, but as we taught them and interacted with them and tried to impress upon them God's call on their life, we realized they're never going to change the world if they live safe. The apostles did not live safe. Jesus did not live safe. So we've got to raise kids to live dangerously. So even to this day, our kids are grown and gone. We'll, we'll, we'll text and email and Facebook and say, hey, live dangerous. Take risks for Jesus, of course. <laughs> I work over at Eternity Bible College, and our motto over there is training men and women to live and die well. That so resonated with my wife and I because it was our value in parenting. EBC was born out of Cornerstone Church. We have the same DNA. So the goal in this church is also to disciple all of us to live and die well. Now, there's a cost to raising our kids this way. Parents, there's a cost Our kids may follow God's call to remote places around the world. We may never know our grandkids very well. Christmas might be kind of lonely. 
I might get jealous when I hear that you're having all of your kids and grandkids over for Thanksgiving dinner, and I'm not. Our kids may be killed for the sake of Christ. God may call them into a dangerous setting where they may literally lose their lives. Well, this is not theoretical for Don and I. We feel it acutely. Currently, our daughter, who is 26 for the first time in her life, is more than an hour away from us. She's living in Portland, Oregon, ministering, taking the gospel to the arts hipster community of downtown Portland. She also is a graduate of Eternity Bible College. Another shameless promotion there. Our son, who is 23, um, we've missed many Christmases with him. He is currently in Australia, taking the gospel to the backpacker youth hostel culture. Two Christmases ago, he was in Thailand. We Skyped on Christmas Day. Last Christmas, he was in Australia. I don't know if we Skyped or not, but anyway, we missed him. This Christmas, I have no idea where he'll be. God has called him to go to some unique crazy way out places and take the gospel into some very unique settings that I'll never have a chance to minister to. He was on a work visa in Australia, so he got this incredibly good paying job. But they wanted him to, they were going to sponsor his visa, pay for the whole thing, give him citizenship, and they asked him to work 70, 80 hours a week, and he said, you know what, that's not what I want to do with my life. I want to be doing the ministry side of it, not making the money and he quit his job. Two weeks ago, he quit the job. Now, as a parent, it's like, Taylor, you got a good job. Keep it, keep it, you know. But then I realized, no, that's the, that's the world's standards, not mine. Let me repeat, it's all about Jesus. Not just Jesus first, but Jesus only. He wants everything. He wants our kids too. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. So marriage and family are are, one of those areas that God chooses to address before he goes silent for 400 years. It's kind of an important aspect of living for Jesus alone. It's kind of a good indicator of where we are at in our walk. The other area that uh, he chooses to address in his book is money, finances. Anybody ever dream about winning the lottery? Besides me, I guess. Oh, two of us, good. Why did we want to win the lottery? What were you going to do with the money? Don't answer, it would be embarrassing. Um, (laughs) What's the purpose of money? Why does God give us wealth? And you might think, I'm not wealthy. No, you're wealthy. If you have anything, you're wealthy. Why does God give us that stuff? Israel had it all wrong. Chapter 3 and verse 8. And I just want to walk us through three points or three truths that uh, Malachi addresses about money. First of all, we see that God accuses Israel of robbing him. 3.8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? See the cluelessness there again? How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Now, just if you're not familiar with the word tithe, it's an old English word that means tenth. The Hebrew word behind it also means tenth part. So it's that idea of 10%. Now, are we robbing God? The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, am I robbing God? What's that mean? What's that look like? Now, understand, we're not robbing God when we don't give Him 10% of our income. We're robbing God when we think that and act like all of our money and our stuff is ours. Tithing is not giving to God 10% of my money. Tithing is dedicating back to God's work a portion of all that He already owns. He owns it all. Your money, your house, your job, your 401k, your IRA, your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents. He owns it all already. And tithing is simply this aspect of dedicating back to Him 10% of what is already His. And understand, He can blow it all away with a puff. Anybody remember the recession of a few years ago? Anybody feeling the consequences of that still? Overnight, trillions of dollars of wealth disappeared. God can do that. It's all His. Now, the the second point we see here about money is that Malachi teaches this concept that's sometimes called storehouse tithing. Verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, Old Testament tithing was, was really more like, or Old Testament giving, I should say, was more like 22 or 23% of your income. Tithe means 10%, but Israel was to give a tithe. They were to give a second tithe. And like every three years, they were to give a third tithe. I mean, if you study it, you realize it's not just 10%. But it was also their welfare system. And what Israel would do was bring in these various tithes and offerings and bring them into the temple or the synagogue or the local whatever the worship center was that they had there, and they would bring it into the storehouse. And then it could be dispersed and distributed to the poor and for the care of the priests and so on as needed. I grew up with a teaching called storehouse tithing. And the idea of that, it was built right out of Malachi here, the idea was that the bulk of our giving, the bulk of our tithing, should go to the local church, which functions as the storehouse in the church age today. Not a law. It's not a law, but it's a principle. It's a good principle. As members of Cornerstone Church, this is our storehouse. This church provides uh, pastoral care and counseling that we heard about and grief share programs, and it provides electricity and a building and air conditioning. I'm thankful for air conditioning this morning and, and lighting, and it provides VBS for our kids and a youth ministry and, and, we, and, and, our, and our budget gives to numerous ministries around the globe. So there's a clear teaching that a significant portion of our giving back to God should go to the storehouse, the church. But then Malachi goes on in verse 10 and explains the law of sowing and reaping. Verse 10, Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing till there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you. I will, it's as if God's saying, I will tweak, I will manipulate the economy and your benefit. So it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. 
There's a law of sowing and reaping in the Bible that says that if I live a stingy life, I'm going to reap stingy benefits. And if I live a generous life, I'll reap generous benefits. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul explains it like this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean if I tithe faithfully, I'll get rich. doesn't mean if I give money, I get money back. It means there is blessing, all kinds of various sorts of blessing that comes if I'm generous. It means, it means spending less on myself so I can be generous to others. It means giving up a game of golf or maybe some new clothes so I can buy some more Yembi Yembi Bibles. Do you realize that we have a an extension church in Papua New Guinea where the people have no Bibles. Remember earlier I told you how many Bibles I have on my shelf? 25 or 30? And for, for $30 each, we can put a waterproof, rotproof, jungle-proof Bible in the hands of people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Tim and Courtney, uh, Chantere are in the, in the lobby today. Lots of things to do in the lobby today uh, with uh, information on how you can buy a few Bibles. As I was preparing this message, I had occasion to, uh, I have a, a silly little hobby that I indulge once in a while, and I went into the hobby store and I, I, I dropped 50 bucks just like that. And as I was preparing this, I thought, $50 on trash. I could have bought almost two Bibles. I probably could have supported a national pastor for two months in the third world for $50. Now, that doesn't mean I can never spend money on myself, but we need, to, we need to think about how we spend our wealth that God's given us. So does that mean we should all be giving 10% of our income to the church, to ministry? Well, yes and no. This is not a law we have to obey. It's an indicator of our heart. What we do with our money is an indicator of our passion for Jesus or passion for ourselves. I would like to suggest that for many of us, many, many of us giving back to God, only 10% of our income is robbing God. Pastor and author John Piper said this, tithing is a contemporary, middle-class American way of robbing God. In other words, only giving 10% is not enough. His, his principle, his standard for us is to be generous and to be cheerful and put Jesus first. So God addresses these two areas of family and money. And the fact that he is as harsh as he is is born out of the reality that he loves us greatly. Would anybody disagree that marriage relationships, parenting, child relationships, and finances can bring the greatest grief and heartache and pain on earth? But they can also bring the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest fulfillment. God knows that. And he gives us his principles so that if we live by them, we get the benefit of his blessing, not, the, not the, the curse of the dysfunction. 
Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That's what Malachi is doing here. Which are you? What do your life indicators say you are? The righteous or the wicked? The one who's serving God or the one who does not serve him? Our marriages should look very different than the world's. Security, honesty, honoring each other, cherishing each other. An inviolable covenant. We stay in love because we're married. We don't bolt from the marriage because we think we've fallen out of love. Our parenting should look different. We, we raise our kids to serve Jesus and to, to be a witness to the next generation. We release them to go where God calls them to go, to live for Jesus alone and not for selfish gain. Just because our kids don't get a good-paying job doesn't mean we won't be taken care of in retirement. Our attitude toward money should look different. There should be generous giving to God's work, sacrificial giving. We should, we should forego some pleasures that we think we deserve in order that people around the world and other places can hear the gospel. Understand that what I have is not mine, but God has given it to me so I can bless others. God is the one who signs my paycheck, not my company. So what are we going to do with all this? There's been a lot. There's a, there's a lot in this book. Maybe you think it's too late. It's too late. It's always too late for something. We all have regrets. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things we wish we hadn't done. None of us live for Jesus perfectly all the time. But I also want to say it's never too late to do something. I challenge you to take at least but one thing away from God's word this morning. Maybe you have been robbing God. Maybe you are robbing God. So start giving. Start with 10%. Let Malachi 3.10 be your mantra. Test me and see if I won't throw open the windows of heaven. Go ahead. Put God to the test. See if you can outgive him. Maybe you have divorced the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. And reconciliation is impossible. Have you ever gone back to that former spouse and confessed your failure in the whole mess? Maybe that's a step of action you need to take. Maybe you've messed up your kids with your own selfish way of living, and they're beyond hope as far as you can see. They're not living for Christ. They're not godly. You know, your kids will watch you to the day you die. It's never too late to be a good example. Maybe we need to go to our kids and ask them to forgive us and then pray like crazy that God would turn them around and finish well. Maybe you're not married, you don't have kids, but you want to. Is your desire for marriage, for children, based on Jesus alone, on displaying His covenant? Jesus is not asking for first place in our life. He wants the only place. This is God's message to Israel as He closes out the Old Testament. This is His last message before He shuts down His revelation for 400 years. This may be the last time you hear God's Word spoken. I have no idea what happens in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, hour. You don't either. What will you do with His Word? Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for Your Word and for the 
relevancy of it and even how it addresses issues in our lives here today, now, Southern California, 2013. And I pray that each of us would hear what you would say to us by your spirit. I pray that you would speak in a personal, individual way so that you are glorified in our lives, so that we can honor you and serve you and exalt you and experience the blessing of living for Jesus alone. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.